Welcome to Empower Humans. Welcome again to the Empower Humans podcast. This is episode 159, back today from a little hiatus for a couple weeks here. I was on vacation. Today we have Scout Sobel. She is the uh, head of Scout's agency. Uh, she works a lot with women, uh, but also she has a book called The Emotional Entrepreneur. Uh, she has a podcast called Scout and also one called OK Sis with her sister Maddie. Uh, but a big portion of our conversation today has to do with mental health and a lot of things that she personally has gone through related to uh, you know, bipolar disorder and depression and mania and anxiety in particular, a lot of really important topics that whether it's something that you directly deal with or not, I think this, these are topics that all of us can relate to and should be able to uh, resonate with in some capacity because whether you do or not, we all know somebody uh, in our lives, somebody in most cases that we love and care about who may be going through these things as well, whether that person is is you specifically or not. And so we talk in real in-depth about some really great things. I don't want to give too much away because I'm really excited for this. And by the way, go look for her book again, The Emotional Entrepreneur, August 16th, and uh, pick that one up. And before we jump right into the interview, I just want to remind you, as always, you are absolutely priceless and you're never alone. Please, please, please don't convince yourself or let anyone else convince you of anything otherwise because uh, it's just not true. So you want to live in the truth, don't you? And the truth is that you are absolutely priceless, which means your value is above what I always say is the monetary systems of this world. You're without price. That's what priceless means. Uh, we had actually a, a podcast episode called Your Priceless Worth some time ago. So you can go look that up, uh, powerhumans.com slash podcast. Uh, but just remember, the riches are found in you. And please, 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 we talk about this in our podcast today. Uh, don't, don't let things uh, convince you of some nonsense that's just not true. Find your worth, live your worth, be your worth, contribute great worth <laughs> to your life and to those of others uh, around us that we care about. And again, you're never alone. Whatever you're going through, I promise you're not alone. She talks today, Scout, in our podcast about all kinds of things that she's gone through and uh, sometimes kind of inviting that situation into our lives if from the standpoint of let's let's find the growth and, and be positive no matter what. I know some of this stuff sounds like, oh, this is just more of that hokey positivity stuff. It's not. This is real, real good, solid, actionable material. And uh, real quick, our challenge is study. Start studying. Keep studying. Um, I just started Matthew McConaughey's book, Green Lights, and uh, actually I'm more than halfway through the audiobook of it. Great book. Uh, great story. I always just love people's stories. But study things that resonate with you. Uh, it can be fiction, nonfiction. There's tons of resources. We don't have really any excuses these days. So uh, if you've got any, send them to me and, and I'll assess your excuses. But between these apps that I keep talking about, Libby and Hoopla Digital that connect to the local library system so you can download audiobooks and, and other books you can read. Uh, and then Amazon has tons of uh, resources and options. You can order a physical book. You can use a Kindle. You can <laughs> listen to audiobooks there as well uh, because Amazon owns Audible now. Uh, so all these great, great resources and, and tons, tons more. Uh, just study. Stimulate your mind. Keep your mind and soul in check and in tune on a regular basis because it's easy for it to get out of tune, like I always say, like a musical instrument. So keep studying uh, to keep ourselves on that right track and on that right path. And by the way, Scout talks about that today as part of her healing journey and uh, growth in this process of dealing with her mental health struggles. And the second challenge is make great moments. 
Uh, that's with loved ones generally, but it's with humanity at large, and we should all just be loving each other uh, as a human family regardless. But that's surprise, that's initiative, that's doing things that make great moments and finding the things that matter to the people that we love and then showing love as a verb, as an action item, which is what a verb is, if you remember in school. Uh, so uh, make great moments, spend time uh, you know, my kids are learning different things. My son's learning to skateboard. I go outside and I help him with that. It's things like that. Just spend time together. It's just about spending time together. It doesn't have to be some big old production, uh, but it can be at times as well. It doesn't always have to be. Make great moments. Uh, find the things that matter and something that can be kind of your thing with this other person or this group of people that, hey, this is our thing and this is where we bond and grow together. And I promise these will be pillars in our lives, like I always say, that will overshadow some of the nonsense and the mistakes and the failings that we all have when this life at some point for all of us comes to a close. So let's let's uh, build these pillars by making great moments. The last challenge, let's keep doing this podcast together. I cannot thank you enough for spending time with us. I want you to really feel that in my voice because I genuinely have deep, deep gratitude for each and every one of you. Share the podcast. Uh, friends, family, neighbors also. Go leave a note on their car windshield. Let them know. Empowerhumans.com slash podcast. Go listen to this podcast. And uh, I appreciate that if you do. And even if you don't, I appreciate and love you. And we're, again, flattered you spent time with us. I'm excited to bring you this interview, Scout Sobel. Again, the book, The Emotional Entrepreneur. Uh, her two podcasts, one of them is called Scout. And the other one is called OK Sis with her sister, Maddie. Uh, great, great stuff. So let's jump right in. Here we are with the one and only Amazing author, entrepreneur, and so much more. Here we are with Scout Sobel. Here we go. We are pleased as heck to welcome Scout Sobel today. We were just talking, and Scout's coming to us today from San Diego. Uh, entrepreneur, podcaster, author, book coming out here in August, August the 16th. And Scout, how are things today in San Diego? Things are great. You know, I can't complain. Blessed for another day. Excited to be connecting with you. Yeah. Um, you know, to chat entrepreneurship, mental health, podcasting, all of the things. So I'm doing quite well. Thank you. Yeah, good. I love San Diego. I was out there last year uh, just before COVID. I took my boys to Legoland, you know, up north in Carlsbad, I guess. And uh, but and then everything. So we got lucky. We got in there just before that. How long have you been in San Diego? So I am born and raised in San Diego. Mm -hmm. I did move, you know, college a few years after, but I came back to San Diego, I think it was when I was 24. So I've been here for about six years now, officially kind of living here. And I was having a conversation yesterday with a friend on if I would ever leave. And I just don't think that's in the cards for me. <laughs> well, at a place like San Diego, it's not like you really need to. I mean, you got nice weather, you've got lots of things to do and you're down the road from Disneyland and lots of beaches. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't think, and you know, and then the dads, you know, my dad's 10 minutes away, which is always nice. My whole family's here. So yeah. I'm grateful that my whole family decided to locate here and have me here. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was born in Anaheim, but we moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico when oh, I was wow. a baby. No one asked my opinion, you know, as a baby, sadly. Yeah, rude. You didn't give consent to that move. <laughs> I would have rather grown up next to Disneyland or something, but it is what it is. And I'm still going through the therapy about, no, I'm just kidding. But, um, <laughs> and, and by the way, speaking of therapy, and there's no stigma or making fun of, because we're talking today about a lot of things, but one of the topics is mental health. And, mm -hmm. uh, and you've got quite a story, as I understand, and I've read a lot of things about your story. Uh, where do you want to start with your story? I, you know, I, I like to go as far back as people want because, you know, 
life is life and childhood or whatever, but tell me your story as, as you'd like to tell it. Yeah. You know, I usually start my story of when I had my first depressive episode at 14, but I am really starting to realize that there were a lot of, I don't know if the right word is warning signs, but signals that my mental health or mental health for me was going to be something that I would have to really work at for the rest of my life. You know, I would have anxiety attacks as a first grader and refuse to go to school and I didn't want to go to camp. I wanted to isolate in my room. And I remember the moment I experienced anxiety as a five-year-old and how it plagued me for three days. And so I really definitely see kind of the foundational makings all the way back to the age of four um, with anxiety and depression, social isolation, et cetera. But it wasn't until I was 14 that I really had kind of an official serious depressive episode and Mm. I started restricting food, binging, purging, um, self-harming myself, wearing, you know, monochromatic sweatpants from Target and not the cute ones you see today on TikTok. And <laughs> I, it was very apparent. It was not a secret. I, you know, the, the outward appearance of me truly did match the inward. And once my school found out, my high school found out about the self-harm, they alerted my parents who immediately put me into therapy at the age of 14. And, you know, my therapy journey started off rocky, I think, as any other angsty teenager, you know, I really uh, resisted it in the beginning, I didn't have friends in therapy, this was 15 years ago, therapy wasn't what it is today, as far as it being talked about and super mainstream. So, um, you know, I, I had a therapist who talked about himself a lot, which I didn't know was a problem, but it was. (laughs) And I just remember taking a 500 question test and um, that basically summed up the, the, uh, the state of my mental health. And I ranked between chronic and clinical depression, but it wasn't really until I left for college that it, it started dawning on me that my mental health was something that if not taken seriously, if not really given the support that it needs, could really take me off into dangerous places. I started losing touch with reality and getting very paranoid and developing an acute sense of psychosis where I believed men were following me home, underneath my bed, in my closet. And mm-hmm. you know, when you have mental health problems as a teenager, there's always that question of, well, is it hormonal? Well, is she just a rebellious teenager, et cetera? And so I am really grateful that I was never formally diagnosed in high school because I think if I was, the quick trajectory would have been to put me on medication. And I think I needed some more time to really flesh out what my mental illness was. Mm -hmm. And so once the paranoia and the psychosis came in, it was very clear to myself and to my family members that something really serious was happening here. And so I dropped out of college. I was formally diagnosed with bipolar disorder Mm -hmm. and I went through outpatient twice. They locked me up on inpatient. I've been through a medley of medication about six, seven therapists. And, you know, there was a time in my early twenties where I truly was unable to function in society. I couldn't hold a job as a gelato scooper, as a waitress, as a bookseller, as an intern. And there was a lot of talks about me not being able to function, especially as my symptoms of depression, anxiety, hypomania, psychosis, paranoia, catatonia, and suicidal ideation was this intense, crazy storm, um, there were, there was talks about 
about my future not happening in the way that, you know, I think I deserve it to and, and the way I wanted it to look mm-hmm. um, until I found entrepreneurship. And the minute I found entrepreneurship, uh, my life turned around. And so I'm forever grateful for not only the emotional healing I've been able to do with my bipolar disorder and how it's given me such an opportunity to learn about myself, to feel safe in my emotions, to understand my emotions, to, to really hold them as this sacred uh, mentor, guide, ping. Um, it's also led me to totally not being able to function in society. Like there's no chance I could ever have a job today, but it led me to knowing and finding that entrepreneurship is the true path for me. And so it has been a wild ride. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. And I'm, and I honor and respect the heck out of you or anybody who makes themselves vulnerable like this. And, and just the fact that you even need to be vulnerable to express these things. I realize these are very personal topics. So either way, there's a level of vulnerability. But I think it also reflects on our society that we keep a lot of things, uh, you know, locked up and behind closed doors. And and some things obviously should be that way in our lives. But also, you know, I've I've realized I, for one haven't dealt with these particular things personally. I've known some people who have, I've had some others on the podcast even too. Um, what there's all kinds of angles that we could uh, address here, but one of them is from the standpoint of your family, loved ones, friends, um, probably most of which weren't dealing with these issues or at least to the degree you were, how do those of us who aren't, what, what would be beneficial for you and us, I guess, not that it's us and you kind of thing, but the, those of us who are there to try to help and support and uplift somebody dealing with these sorts of things. Do you have any insight on that as far as what, what those of us who don't deal with these things, so we don't fully understand. It's like, I just see something happening and you're clearly suffering. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes, totally. And my answer is nuanced and potentially not the popular opinion in many ways, but um, mm-hmm. you know, Support for someone with a mental illness looks very different for the person. Support for an individual person on anything, you know, really depends on the person. But I think for the most part, really acknowledging in the beginning that this is not something that they are doing to themselves. This is something, you know, that their brain is either putting them through, the the chemicals are firing in different ways. And in the beginning of understanding that that person's going to feel quite hopeless and terrified and not know the way forward. And so just not trying to fix them, but rather being a place where they can just talk about it openly and freely and letting them know that you love them and support them, no matter if they live with this or not, I think allows them to remove the shame and allows them to feel supported and not as if there's something about them that necessarily is quote unquote broken, you know, so I think it starts there. And then, you know, on the flip side, there are many ways that I became addicted to my depression because every time I said, I'm too anxious, I don't want to go to that social event and I would cancel, people would enable me to, to, to cancel because they'd say, Oh, don't worry. She has, you know, she's, she's bipolar and she needs to take care of herself or Mm -hmm. I would freak out about the responsibilities of my life and have my husband come home from work to take care of me. Or I would make my dad cancel his plans so that I could sit on his couch all day and he would make me lunch and dinner, et cetera. Mm. And so I think for the person who lives with the mental illness, and I say this and I, and I, I don't know if it's the most received sentiment, but 
for the mentally ill person, you know, there, there does come a point where you become addicted to, to the toxic emotional patterns that your mental illness gives you. And this mm. is true for everybody, right? You get into a pattern or, or negative habits and it's so hard to break them because your ego has become physiologically addicted to the way you do things that moving into a new way of life is uncomfortable and requires a different kind of pain. And so for me, while I believe that my family and friends were trying to help me so much, it did get to a point where I received a lot of attention because I was depressed and anxious. Yeah. I could stop everybody's lives in a second. <laughs> and that's, that's some powerful shit right there. Right. Yeah. So my husband was, you know, and this is also complicated, but my husband was really the one that looked at me and he said, I can't come home from work and said, you know, I don't care if you're depressed, if you're depressed and hopeful, I'll be in this relationship. But if you're depressed and hopeless, I won't be here anymore. Yeah. And so the support has to come from an unconditional love. It has to come from not wanting to fix. It has to come from listening and being there to support. But it, it can't go into the area of enabling because that keeps the person who is mentally ill. I always say, you know, I don't have the choice to feel the feelings that I feel necessarily. I, I didn't choose depression, anxiety. I do get to choose what I do about them once I feel that emotion. And so, you know, it's a two-way street. The support system has to support unconditionally and just validate the feelings. And the person with the mental illness has to take radical responsibility over the cards they were, de they were dealt in their emotional experience. And I say this also understanding that every mental illness has extreme nuances and levels of severity. And so yeah. in many ways, if, if full care support is what you need, if a hospital is what you need, please, please take that and understand that that's where you're at. But for me, at one point, I had to acknowledge that my depression kept me able to not become an adult. It, it allowed me to avoid the responsibilities of adulthood, of figuring out my career, of learning how to take care of myself, of being in healthy relationships. It allowed me to stay comfortable in bed, even though in bed was hell. It was, it was an easier pain than trying to figure my life out. Mm. Yeah, this is real powerful stuff because um, a lot of what I'm hearing is the, I mean, first and foremost, the foundation is love. The foundation is support. Mm -hmm. And and beyond that, there can be a little bit of a balancing act in terms of we don't want to tiptoe around this to say, oh, here's Scout. She may cancel because she's got this going on. Uh, so let's just kind of allow that. But it sounds like there's kind of a place in the middle where people can just kind of be aware, but also leave it open ended. Give, but maybe be vocal about this is an opportunity, and we'd love to have you at this get together or this dinner or this whatever it is. Um, but not, but you're welcome to stay in bed also, because like you said, it sounded like that became kind of a, a hiding place to kind of. Yeah. You know, correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. I think today, like if I, of course my friends, and I understand when my friends do this, who don't live with mental illnesses, if they say, Hey, I'm really sorry. I overbooked my mental health is suffering. I can't, I need a day. I need an hour. I can't come, et cetera. That is so acceptable. And so, you know, I never, when my friends say that to me who don't have mental illnesses, I, I just applaud them for taking care of themselves. But if it ever became a pattern for me and I just couldn't show up for my friends, you know, I was canceling every event they put on, et cetera. You know, I would expect them to come to me and say, Hey, 
I know you're suffering with your mental health, but I just want to communicate how it makes me feel when you cancel on me this much. Yeah. That's a really beautiful way to have a human, human conversation where two people get to have an emotional experience and it is a two way street. Right. So in that sense, a lot of the times I think people tell around um, communicating their feelings, but I really would expect my best friend to tell me that if my mental illness was getting in the way of our friendship. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, is it, one of the things we do, at least in the Western world is we're always looking at, well, why, why did this happen? And it's not necessarily, especially with stuff like this, it's, there's not necessarily a definitive why. Uh, like I've had a lot in my family, different forms of mental illness, uh, you know, weaved throughout <laughs> different members of family and extended family. And, and I think a lot of people can probably relate to that. Um, is there any, is it even worth asking why uh, when you're going through treatment and therapy and things like that, maybe that comes up and obviously some of those things may be very personal things too. And maybe it's just genetics and it just happens to be a thing that's there. Um, is it worth asking why, or is it just worth, okay, well, this is here. What do we do about it? I think it's a really great combination of both. I think every single person, the way we act, the way our patterns you know, play out the way our thoughts are, the way our automatic responses are, is a culmination of our childhood and what we experienced. So no one is exempt from the fact that who they are today is so significantly imprinted because of the ages from around zero to seven. And so I think that kind of inner child work is so important for everybody. And with a mental illness, there is a biological kind of quote unquote born with it aspect. And I think that there does come a time, there's a time and place depending on where you're at in your healing where you say, okay, I want to do inner child work. That stuff's very, very potent and can really be raw. So I recommend doing that with a therapist or a guide, et cetera. But, you know, I, I believe that certain past experiences have created who I am today. And I also believe that my mental illness is also like a culmination of my biochemistry. My mother, you know, also suffers from mental health problems. Mm -hmm. And so at some point looking back into the past is super helpful. And at other points it's like, okay, well, we're here. What can we do about it now? So I think it's really both. And I, you know, if I'm living too much with my healing in the past, I think that's detrimental. And if I'm living too much in denial of how the past shaped me, that's also detrimental. So I like to do a little mix. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably healthy. I, I'm all about balancing things. It's not too extreme of one thing or another in all areas of life, really. <laughs> um, and, you know, and as I look at some of the information that I'd received from you guys as well, there's a list of things that some people may not know what this means. Uh, obviously, we've talked about anxiety, hypomania, depression, catatonia, psychosis, suicidal ideation. Um, do you want to talk about any of those, especially words that maybe are less in the daily vernacular of most people like hypomania and stuff? Do we, I mean, we've talked a little bit already. I just, um, is there any more about this that you'd like to explain? Um, and it may, again, it differs person to person for those who do suffer from these sorts of things. But when you talk about depression, you hear words like suicidal ideation. I mean, this is very serious stuff. Yeah. So um, I think probably the most the, the rarest, uh, I suppose, symptom that I experience is catatonia. 
yeah. which is where my nervous system gets so fried out from anxiety and depression and whatever my brain's doing to me that I become physically paralyzed for, mm. you know, a few minutes. It can be hours. One time I was really in and out of it for an entire month and was in bed. And so that is definitely a very rare mental illness um, or with bipolar disorder. Some people have this and you know, the first time it happened, I was in the hospital in the ER for six hours because we didn't know if it was neurological, I couldn't speak, etc. So that's kind of mm -hmm. one of the more interesting or, you know, people don't know that that is a symptom of bipolar disorder. It's a very rare symptom of bipolar disorder, but it is uh, one that's definitely taken over significant periods of my life. And then hypomania, you know, I'm bipolar type two. So that means that the depression is more significant than the mania. And so hypomania is just essentially acute mania where my, um, I have manic episodes that are uh, a lot more subdued, a lot more watered down. They're kind of fun. So I don't talk about them too much because they haven't really done any destruction over my life. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit of the ones where I think people maybe haven't or aren't as familiar with. Okay. Okay. Well, and thank you for explaining all that. This is uh, really an interesting uh, topic to me because, again, and I, like I say, I think a lot of people can relate whether they're suffering personally in some capacity with these sorts of things or uh, know somebody who is. I think just about all of us who interact with others, which is most of us, uh, can relate. And it's one of those levels, <laughs> whether it's us or someone we know, someone we love and care about. Um, yeah. And even, you know, what I've discovered as I went out and started talking about my mental illness journey is that those without those that don't live with a quote unquote mental illness in the way that I do found such solace in the way that I've been able to heal myself. Because I think that what we're starting to realize as a society is that mental health is not just for the mentally ill. Mental health is for everybody. And so it's opened up this wider conversation about you know, how do we just feel safe in our emotions? I was shocked to hear about how many of my friends, you know, live with self-doubt and negative thought patterns and not feeling like they're good enough, et cetera. And so I've been able to kind of go through, you know, walk through the fire to come out to where I am today. And the lessons and healing stuff that I've learned is totally universal for people without mental illnesses. And so in that way, just the conversation around everybody taking better care of their mental health is so awesome to see because when I was diagnosed, I mean, I don't even think there was Instagram, you know? Yeah. 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 That's true. I, one of the things I was thinking about recently too, is there's kind of two versions of each of us. There's the version we portray publicly and what that could exist on social media or just at our job or whatever where people go to church or whatever they do is interact with others. And then there's reality. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so how much of this should be, I guess, kept under wraps or I guess the better question is how much has it helped you to go out and actually be public and talk about this? And, you know, some of your other friends and associates who've also suffered from these things, uh, how helpful is that if it is? You know, it's been so incredibly helpful, not only for my own healing, but for so many others. And, you know, Phil, I was telling my friend at dinner the other day, she was saying, wow, I listened to you on this podcast episode and you're just so brave for being so vulnerable. And I said, I'm actually not brave because I actually didn't know that I wasn't quote unquote supposed to speak about this or that 
<laughs> this was something that people were like, whoa, you're disclosing this. You know, I found out that I was quote unquote brave after I did it because people's responses were just, I can't believe you spoke like that about your life. And so you can't really call me brave because it didn't take any courage to do it because it's just my natural form. I just don't understand and, and won't live a life where I'm a different person on different, you know, in different settings. Of course, there's the more professional you, there's the romantic you, there's the friend you, of course, but I don't understand and don't want to partake in showing up as someone who has to hide certain aspects of herself you know, there was no part of me that felt shame for living with a mental illness. I saw it very much like you have diabetes and talk about it. I don't, I don't understand why when I open my mouth and say these things, I get met with, wow, it's so brave that you're so vulnerable. And I say, I'm not being vulnerable. I'm being myself. And if it's brave to be myself, then I don't know how we got so far away from that authenticity. And so for me, it really does it required no bravery on my, on my behalf, no strengthening, nothing. And so I don't even like to really acknowledge that part of me as an accomplishment just because it didn't require much for me to do it. It was just me being me. And so yeah. um, in that sense, I hope that that becomes more of a norm, especially on social media. You know, I run Scouts Agency and I never want my team to show up for eight hours a day as someone that they're not. And then right. when the clock hits five, they're, they're the real them, you know, <laughs> that, that seems so incredibly sad to me. And so I hope, I guess a secondary effect of the way I tell my story is inviting others to also be more vulnerable. And it's not even, you know, vulnerability is one thing, but just showing up as themselves, you know, that, that really speaks to me. And I, and I hope that's something that we can do. You know, I was looking on Instagram and I follow this blogger who I love and she always looks so beautiful and put together. Right. And she posted a photo without a filter and with no makeup and no filter and don't get me wrong. She's gorgeous. But I saw a person, I saw the human and I said, you know what? I told my sister, I said for a little bit, I don't know if this will continue forever, but I'm not going to show up on Instagram with a face filter on anymore. And she said, wow, that's really brave of you. And I said, it's brave to look like myself. And (laughs) I think we've just gotten so far away. And I, you know what, I don't know if we were ever like this, but you know, now we have the physical filters on Instagram to put, but we put the emotional filters on ourselves constantly. And you know, yes, there are things I keep private, like, you know, the inner workings of my marriage is, is something I hold very sacred, but mm-hmm. I just, I hope people can, you know, feel a little bit better and take the mask off and the filter off and, and feel confident showing up as them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I agree yeah, wholeheartedly. I think there's some real power in that. And, you know, I honor you as being somewhat of a trailblazer and a leader in that regard, because you're doing it. So, it almost gives others permission to follow your lead. And I just think there's real power as you were expressing here in authenticity. And because on the flip side of that coin, it's very, uh, you, you can kind of imprison yourself by not being your true self. And, you know, a friend of mine recently said everything in life, just about all the decisions we make from what we do in our relationships and everything else, what we eat, 
can be empowering and freeing, or it can be enslaving and imprisoning, mm -hmm. uh, disempowering in our lives. And I think it's safe to say if we were all sitting in the same room on this planet, I think most of us would agree. Yes, being authentic, it may involve some bravery, at least at first for some of us. Mm -hmm. And but a lot of that's based on societal norms and stuff more than anything. But above and beyond that, it's very it's a very freeing, liberating, empowering place to be, isn't it? It really is. I mean, I feel immediately when I'm doing something that's restrictive and doesn't feel good in my body and I can identify it very quickly. And it's just a mm. no for me at this point. If something makes me feel that way, I don't care how much you pay me. You know, it's just a no. Every choice I make is so that I feel empowered and free and expansive. And that is probably the greatest gift my bipolar disorder has given me because if I continuously make decisions where I am imprisoned and disempowered or the type of work I'm doing isn't within my purpose or my passion and isn't fulfilling, my bipolar within weeks will flare up and take me down. And so yeah. I have the greatest internal compass. I will never wake up at the age of 40, 50, 60, 70 and ask myself what happened because my bipolar is constantly like, eh, wrong turn, go to the left instead. And it's just a matter of if you're willing to accept the signal and be guided by what your body and your emotions are telling you. Yeah. Yeah. Really good points. And so it's when I started working out again as an adult too, I was just kind of the same thing. I started, a lot of people started doing these beach body workouts. I did too. And it was like Tony Horton and these guys would say, listen to your body. Uh, and, and I, all that stuff's kind of just stuck with me too, just from working out, like really listen to your body. Sometimes you have to modify a workout or, and the same is true in just our day-to-day -day lives. Listen to your mind, your soul, your mental health and your body mm -hmm. and, and follow accordingly. Um, knowing logically what's, what's going to be the best thing. It's not follow necessarily like, Hey, I want to go do drugs to mask this. So we got to be wise in our decisions, obviously. Um, I'm just kind of piggybacking what you said. I, I did want to backpedal a little bit with earlier. You'd mentioned this, this situation where your then boyfriend who spoiler alert is now your husband uh, said this thing to you, right? He said, he said, I don't care if you're depressed, if you're depressed and hopeful, I can be in this relationship. If you're depressed and hopeless, I can't do this with you. Tell me more about that moment. Um, or it may be what led up to that moment. And maybe the, I don't know if aftermath is the right word, but what, what transpired after, what did that situation do for you specifically and, and what led up to it or whatever you'd like to tell me about that? Cause it sounds like that was a very pivotal moment for you. It really was. If only my husband knew how famous he was for that line because it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's helped so many people. And I say it on, you know, every time I talk on a podcast, I don't even think he knows how much he's had on the internet. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I started dating my husband when I turned 21. It was a, a year after being diagnosed, going through outpatient and inpatient. And we had actually dated a little bit in high school. So I had known him since I was 14. And he is now 10 years sober. And when we got back together, he was about a year and a half sober. And so mm -hmm. he was very strict with his self-healing and his recovery. And he wasn't going to put himself in a situation that wasn't with somebody that was just as serious about, you know, taking radical responsibility over their life. He also was very clear with the boundary of, I, I can't sit here and just take care of you and enable you if you don't meet me halfway. And so, you know, 
it was very, very clear on date one, what we were both dealing with, you know, mm-hmm. he's a year and a half recovery. I'm just out of inpatient. It's like a freaking recipe. And, um, <laughs> he had seen me go through a few panic attacks and crying fits and, he saw me quit an internship and it was, I think it was about two months into dating. I remember him telling me this in the dining room of my mother's house, but who knows if it was actually there, if I've just, I don't know, solidified it in that moment for me. But he said that to me and I looked at him and I had dropped out of college. I had lost jobs, internships. Some of my friendships were strained. My parents were exhausted. And I just decided that I, that that was, he was not going to be the next thing that I lost and, or that I was just done losing stuff, you know? And, um, he was very upfront with his intentions with me, which was a serious long-term thing, which did happen. And so he wasn't just like a dating fling. He made it very known that he wanted something serious with me. And so when he said that to me, I said, okay, what if I did everything the same, but I just infused hope? Because yeah. what, what would happen, right? And the minute I infused hope, I just, the energy pulled me forward. I was like, okay, um, support groups. Where can I go to support groups? And I started going to 12-step support groups for depression and anxiety twice a week. And then I bought every self-help book possible. This was when nobody walked down the self-help aisle at a bookstore. (laughs) And I started, you know, expressing gratitude. I started developing a relationship with a higher power. And, you know, him saying that really was the catalyst for me starting to take radical responsibility over my healing. And we went through a lot of downs over the years, even after that. But that was the moment that I wasn't a victim anymore. It, was, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, okay, I passively go to therapy. I passively take my meds. I, I just sit here crying. It was the moment I started playing an active role in my healing. Yeah. Yeah, and thank you for opening up more on that. I, I love what you're saying and infusing hope. I think there's some real, real power in just that concept that we, I think myself included, all of us can really uh, incorporate into our lives because life is not always an easy journey. And, and some of that too, it sounds like is, is getting real with ourselves about expectations. We live in this modern Instagram world where mm-hmm. the, again, going back to what we said a little bit ago about you've got the self that you portray, that's the Instagram, Facebook, whatever social media self, and then reality. <laughs> um, I think there's just something to be said for, like we talked about authenticity, but also infusing hope. And I love that you said radical responsibility also, because we, I had a gal on some episodes ago who used the term radical ownership, which is pretty much the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it really hit me just because the word radical uh, in this context, referring to like real deep ownership, complete ownership of the whole thing. And, and, and then getting these expectations of, and that's why I brought up the social media is life isn't always going to be that beautiful, especially most of the time, really that beautiful social media depiction that there's going to be trials and problems. If you have, like, I have two boys myself, there's going to be a blown out diaper and this food spilled all over the floor or, you know, dirty toilets and <laughs> all the things that life actually is screaming and different things like that, that just happened. Uh, and, and just get those expectations and realize maybe embrace that stuff because it sounds 
you tell me, but those things and those downtimes together that you've muscled through, has that helped your relationship to have gone through that and gotten through it together? Yeah, it, it has. And, you know, it's, it's provided a lot of growth opportunities, a lot of challenges for sure. Um, a lot of making sure that we're a foundational team. And it took me a few more times, a few more depressive episodes to really embody that radical responsibility and acceptance over my life. Um, and it wasn't really even until last year where I really realized that we love life conditionally. We love it when it's going well. We love it when we get the job promotion. We love it when we get the proposal. We love it when, you know, whatever, whatever it is. But we don't love life when it's not going our way. And I kind of felt bad for life. I was like, <laughs> we would never not like our friend when she's down. So why do we not like our own lives when she or he is down? Yeah. Like I lost my dog in January. Suddenly she passed and mm. she had been with me since. 18. I don't have children. So she was kind of, you know, my first little baby. She'd been through a lot with me. And I was so, I was grieving. I was so devastated. And I went for a walk with my husband and we were just crying. And, and I said, you know what? I'm so grateful that I'm grieving right now because this heavy emotion is proof that I have a lot of meaning in my life. Yes. She really gave me so much meaning. And I said, I don't want to hate my life right now because there's nothing to hate other than the fact that a love that I had for so many years isn't here in the physical form anymore. But it was in that moment that I realized I'm going to love this process the way I love every other good process I've been through. And it was the moment I realized and accepted that life's spectrum of human emotions and experiences they're not for us to pick and choose which one we decide is best or not. They're to be accepted in all that is coming to us. And once you can fall in love with those peaks and those valleys and those ups and those downs and feel safe within yourself during those downs, all of a sudden life becomes one giant teacher that's happening for you and not to you. Yeah. And I think getting to that perspective has been one of the greatest shifts of my life. Yeah. Great, great stuff. And that's what I was about to say too. In the self-help world, we've heard this phrase a lot. Life doesn't happen to you. It happens for you. It's all easier said than done, but right in context, but um, it's so finding that meaning. If you've been down that self-help aisle enough, you've heard Tony talk about this, Tony Robbins about, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we assign meaning to everything. And so we can find that and, and by the way, my condolences for the loss of your dog. Some people might sit back and say, oh, it's just a dog, blah, blah, blah. No, no, because that meaning is there for you. And that dog was your companion and meant a lot. And also, I, I'm so happy you just said that, Phil, because I actually felt when that happened, I said, well, I shouldn't talk about this as a dog. And I think we as a society and as human beings get to acknowledge that every feeling we feel is valid and gets to be experienced. Damn and, right. And so in that, like, don't ever think if you're sad about something that don't shame yourself and hide it because it's not a big enough thing to be sad about, quote unquote. Your emotion is there for a reason and you get to play that emotion out. Yes, absolutely. And let's not shame others either. Just because we may not relate. You know, I can relate. I've had pets and I think most of us in America at least have had pets or no friends with pets. And But whatever it is, 
mm-hmm. if, if you had had a pet rock and it just disappeared somehow, it, it, it mattered to you. Maybe not other people won't relate in that same way, but so what? Let's honor because we love this person, what matters to them. And uh, so, and as we talk about this topic, uh, Scout, I just want to, you know, when you talk about healing, I know you went through a lot of things and you'd mentioned some of this earlier about um, some of your self-development work and some of the routines and, and even prayer and, and things that you did. Talk to me about that journey a little bit. Obviously, you know, full disclosure, we're not implying that you've arrived at some per- perfect state now. This is a continual journey, right? Um, but the journey of getting to a place of, um, correct me if I'm wrong, some level of understanding and stability in that journey, uh, and then finding entrepreneurship along the way as well. Do you want to expound a little more as far as that healing journey and finding entrepreneurship? Yep, my healing journey was, I always say it was just some really, it was years of trial and error, you know, does meditation work for me? What does this feel like if I, you know, breathe in some essential oils before I start my work? What kind of books do I like to read? Is it better if I read before bed or in the morning? Does journaling the first thing in the morning light me up? When's the best time for my body to get exercise in? And so, you know, I have a pretty extensive routine, morning routine, day routine, night routine, you know, I even freaking time batch my relationship, but it took a really long time to get to that place. And, and the first thing I did was just start trying. So I started trying, you know, I read about gratitude. I said, okay, every morning I'm going to list three things I'm grateful for. And then once I did that every morning, I said, okay, it feels better when I don't look at my phone in the morning. So I'm not going to look at my phone for 30 minutes. Now I don't look at it for up to two hours. And so it was a lot of trial and error. It was a lot of reading. You know, I think what's really interesting about mental illness is like, you know, if you're an alcoholic or an addict, you stop your life and you go to rehab and you spend one to two years in a designated space, whether it's rehab and then sober living, et cetera, where you are really in a community and that is your sole focus for me. And for many others who live with them, just, you know, depression, anxiety, bipolar, there isn't exactly a structure or an institution, or I don't know if institution is the right word, a place for us to really do that. And so I was, healing alongside living. And so I believe that my healing was probably um, stretched out longer than it needs to be than it needed to be if I just dedicated a year to two to solely healing in a program and being guided by professionals. So it really has been a very large trial and error. But I found entrepreneurship at the age of 22, which has become a huge catalyst for taking responsibility over my life. I was sitting at a coffee shop with a friend and I just blurted out, do you want to start a magazine? And she said, yes. And we were going to just print it at Kinko's and take the pictures with disposable cameras and pass it out to our friends for free. And something in my mind just switched. And all of a sudden, I got the Instagram handle, the domain name, the email addresses. I researched printers. And then I had meetings with the top printers in the county. And then I got a quote. And I was going to need $10,000. And I did a Kickstarter. And you know, fast forward, our third issue was sold in Barnes and Noble who contacted us to pick it up and um, had Halsey, the musician on the cover. And at that point I was 24 and still had not graduated college. And, and, but in those two years had started to be able to be functional because when I found entrepreneurship, it, it, it clicked in my mind because entrepreneurship has high highs and low lows. It worked the same way my bipolar worked. And so I could understand and move through it because I was used to it. 
it felt like home in many ways. And then, you know, with responsibility of working as a, as a hostess, it was too easy for me to get a psychiatry note to bow out. Right. Yeah. I could just pull the mentally ill card when I couldn't handle it anymore. But with entrepreneurship, if you don't show up, nothing happens. And that actual intense amount of responsibility where it wasn't just responsibility, it was literally this will not happen if you don't show up. It was something only I in this world could do, gave me such a sense of purpose. And it was something I've chased ever since. Today, I have a successful podcast, OKSIS podcast with my sister. I run a multiple six-figure agency, Scott's Agency, where we specialize in getting women as guests on podcasts. I've been able to build us to a team of five. We represented some of the most amazing women in the game, including Rebecca Minkoff and Jessica Zweig. And I have my, you know, my solo podcast, Scout Podcast. Now I have this book, The Emotional Entrepreneur, which really combines my emotional healing into lessons that have made me successful as an entrepreneur. So it's, it's the thing that gave me it it's it's like the it's the outline that lets me work the outline of or the the outfit or whatever the parameter or the skeleton of working for somebody else it was just too easy for me to quit but when i found entrepreneurship and infused this purpose and fulfillment it got me out of bed in the morning i couldn't quit and so it's been the biggest blessing in my life. That's so awesome. And I'm so glad you found that. And, and it's not to say that that's necessarily everyone's one size fits all solution. Totally. For you, it's again, you get to know yourself, listen to your mind, heart, body, and everything else and, and find your mission and your place and niche where you need to be. But um, I love that story. And thank you so much for sharing all of it. Um, Real quick, let's talk about this book too, because The Emotional Entrepreneur, which by the way, I love that title. It's very simple, straightforward. Some have said the word emotion uh, means energy and motion, but why? <laughs> tell me about the title of the book and and what this is all about, which again, August 16th, everyone go out, find this book. It's going to be just a great value to anyone and everyone, whether you've dealt with mental health and bipolar disorder directly or not. It's a great insightful work, I'm sure. Talk to me about the book and the title, if you would. Yeah. So The Emotional Entrepreneur, I wrote it because I started realizing that the reason I was so successful in business as an entrepreneur was because I took the emotional healing mindsets, perspectives, rituals, routines, and discipline from healing and living with my bipolar disorder. And I applied them into my business. And that was the reason I was able to move through fear, to understand my anxiety, et cetera. And the minute I realized that entrepreneurship is just the biggest emotional personal development situation ever, I recognized really how similar the mental health journey is towards the entrepreneur journey. So I wrote The Emotional Entrepreneur. It is a 25-chapter book. It has 25 emotional lessons that let you go out there and make your dreams happen, whether it's owning your own business, your own agency, starting a podcast, a YouTube channel, what, being a coach, an author, whatever it might be. We touch upon things or I touch upon things in the book, like the fact that entrepreneurship is very personal and emotional. The fact that your anxiety is trying to tell you something, how to shift from lack to abundant mindset, how to celebrate yourself along the way. 
how to renegotiate your relationship to fear and risk. And so it really is the emotional guidebook for entrepreneurship. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And, and I think a, a relatable book from a different angle than a lot of these books come from and, and through your mental health journey. And, and I love that it's 25 lesson, 25 chapter, uh, emotional guidebook. Now, in some of the material you guys had sent me, it says for women who want to pursue a life of purpose, can we men, uh, read this book too? <laughs> you may definitely read the book. Yes. I, I gear it towards women just because that's really the person I know how to talk to specifically, yeah. but there's nothing like gender specific in the book. It's all uh, yours. Nothing, read the whole thing. Yeah. I think, well, if nothing, I'm a single dad and I've, yeah. always, I grew up all boys and it's anything that sheds light on, uh, femininity and, and womanhood is, is welcome in my world in terms of understanding and relating and being a better, you know, maybe future husband again and father and, and maybe partner and all these things, uh, or just man in society to love, respect women. And, and one of the things you said earlier that really hit me too, is about all your friends. Like I've known a lot of women in my life and I, th- it seems to me some of the things that you describe um, occur more often. I don't mean to single out, and this is my unqualified, you know, observation happen with women a lot is mm-hmm. some of it, I think, and, and this isn't again, one size fits all explanation. Our society needs to treat women better um, mm-hmm. in, in how we view women, how we portray women in society, everything from uh, body image issues and eating and diet. And it's just like, I, I, I just really feel like women deserve a gold medal every day. I don't care how fat and thin and tall and short and whatever else, just being a woman and all like everything from, (laughs) I don't mean to be crass, but sitting down to pee and shaving legs and periods and all the, like the stuff we men generally don't deal with. Uh, It is. I always think to myself, I'm like, how, I mean, it's just (laughs) one, thank you for saying that. And, and yes, the amount that women just go through is exhausting. And yet we still show up every day. And I think that why I'm specifically talking to women is because in an economic business standpoint, you know, this is a new playing field historically for us. Unfortunately, women really weren't allowed to do business, own their own bank account, et cetera, for most of our modern society. And so There are studies out there that say that women significantly undercharge because of imposter syndrome and self-doubt. And so the emotional side, you know, women are such emotional creatures. And I think it's one of the most beautiful things about us. And so this is the book to help us really use those emotions as our superpower to step into our worth, to step into celebrating our life, to step into action, because we've been told by media, by other men, et cetera, that, you know, our periods disqualify us from being the president of the United States and and all these crazy things when in reality, women hold a power that is so deep and so intense and powerful that if ignited and when ignited, we, we have the capability to do so much good in this world. And so it is one of my other missions just to uplift and empower women, um, no matter where they are in their mental health, career, passion, purpose, journey. I think it's so important. And I, I really thank you for, for mentioning all of that because it does take, you know, women, we know it. And, it, you know, it does take also the other half of, of the gender, the men to really come forward and see it too. 
Yeah, for sure. And I'm, and I, I'm not trying to pander or anything to women, but yes, I, I really just think we all as a society and us men in general, we need to kind of, uh, let's just shift gears uh, at least a little bit here and uh, honor women better in closing here. Cause I know you got to run just a very busy gal and I totally mm-hmm. respect. And again, honor everything you've shared so many awesome, awesome, both stories, personal insights and everything with us. Do you have any heroes scout uh, anyone you'd like to share that, you know, people that you've looked up to people that uh, in, whether in entrepreneurship uh, women, men, whatever. I know we're talking a lot about the whole mm-hmm. women's side of things today, but who, if any, are uh, some of your heroes? <laughs> I have, you know, I don't really have heroes. I just have these people that I really respect and it's really ever changing depending on where I'm at in my journal journal journey. Right now, Rachel Rogers, the, the author of We Should All Be Millionaires is totally inspiring me to step into my economic worth and to um, understand that building wealth is something that we as women get to do and shouldn't be ashamed of. Jessica's Zweig, she wrote the book B. She's a client of mine. She's built a seven-figure agency and continues to help inspire people, be authentic within their work, which is so special for me and something I really believe in. I have, you know, bigger figure heroes or role models like Mary-Kate Olson. She was the first person I read um, an interview with her in Nylon Magazine at the age of 18. And she was the first person I ever heard say, I have high highs and low lows. And I just saw myself emotionally in that interview and have felt connected to her ever since. Mm -hmm. Um, There's so many, I, I try not to idolize people just because that always lets you down in a certain way, but there's so many (laughs) women that have inspired me throughout my journey. You know, my dad inspires me so significantly. He is an immigrant and built himself a beautifully abundant lifestyle just based off of, you know, his hard work and his business that he started. So he's always an incredible, more realistic strategy sounding board for me. And um, my mom has taught me so much about what it means to be a woman and to absolutely never settle for any aspect of your life. So she has always given me the message that I can do anything without a man. And I am forever (laughs) grateful for her belief in me as well. I love it. I love it. And your parents are in that list. That's great. It's, I just think it's the best thing about having people look up to, yes, everyone's imperfect. But one of the things I learned recently is that when you find people you look up to, a lot of times that sheds light on some things that are within you, that those people have, that you can Mm -hmm. nourish and develop and some seeds of some greatness that you see in them that you also have that can flourish like that too. Um, well, again, the book is The Emotional Entrepreneur, August 16th. Everyone should get that on their calendar and uh, go pick up that book. And uh, of course, the podcast is OK Sis. And you also have another podcast called Simply Scout. Not Simply Scout, but it is Scout, one word, <laughs> which is your yeah. first name. And- yeah. So on Scout, it's just me talking. I don't have guests or anything. So it's just me doing some really short 20 minute episodes twice a week about mental health and entrepreneurship. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Thank you, Scout, so, so much for for your time and uh, just all kinds of great resources, stories, uh, anecdotes, and and just tons of great insights for all levels of this, from those of us who may be suffering from these things directly and those who may love somebody who is. And uh, I think that probably encompasses just about all of us. So 
Uh, I appreciate all of those great things. And uh, to our audience, as always, we're grateful you spent time with us. You're, we're flattered. And uh, until next time, empower yourself, empower the world around you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Empower Humans. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review this podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit EmpowerHumans.com. We'll catch you next time.